Thank you. We're going to switch mics. Pause for station identification. Okay. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you again. I just want to thank Reverend Patrick for allowing me to come and be a part of the Edmonton Center for Spiritual Living. This time, not just singing my truth, but speaking my truth. It's an honor to be here with you all. And it has been a full week. Uh, earlier this week, I was with the students from Victoria Performing Arts High School and also uh, the young men and women from Strathcona. We had a delicious time together as they are preparing to become performance artists artist and as I was telling them they are healing artists as well so when you're up on stage there is something that carries to the audience that becomes this synchronistic type of momentum and so what we give we receive and we are changing the way that people perceive things just by the inflection, by the tone, by the acting, the dancing of what we do on stage. So I am honored to, to be here. Larry Anderson, um, who was here for the first service, had a very important, vital part of me coming to be a part of that with the students. Youth have a, um, they have a, a big place in my heart. And I have just started a foundation called the Open Frames Project, uh, expanding the lens of emotional literacy. It's brand new, it's like two weeks old. <laughs> and I have um, so many things that are coming forth. I'm going to do some work in Nashville and in Memphis and hopefully, 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 if you'll stand with me and, and, and see this, there's a after school program that I wanna put together that is specifically designed for emotional literacy work, learning how to navigate pain and disappointment and anger so that it becomes a stepping stone to greatness and the trajectory of what we can be and what we can give to the world. So I'm going to propose it. I hope they love it because I love it. And if they don't like it, somebody will. That's the way I put it. <laughs> So I don't know how many of you all know, I was born and raised in the South, in Nashville, Tennessee. And being raised in the South, there are things that just come with life. Manners, respect, religion. And I was, I was, I was the youngest child. Uh, my brother's almost 15 years older than me. My sister's 11 years older than I am. And so I would stay with my grandmother while my parents were at work, while my brother and sister were at school. I was about the age three, four, and five years old. And Granny was a self-taught pianist. And one of Granny's favorite pastimes was to teach me hymns, spirituals, and anthems. Now, I didn't want to learn all of that stuff at the age of three and four. I wanted to play. But my grandmother would say, come over here, son. I have something to teach you a song or two. And we'd be in this, this room. She'd call it her front room because everything was in there. A big king-size bed, a pot-belly stove, a television. And in the summertime, my grandmother used to have this huge oscillating fan just blowing about 95 degrees of hot air all around the room. So she'd 
pretend as if she was playing the piano and she would tap these notes and these chords out on her knees and she said just open your mouth and repeat after me and she began to sing great is thy faithfulness oh God my father there is no shadow of turning with thee and I'd look up and my grandmother's head would be tilted back and tears would be streaming down her face. You know, and at the age of three and four, you think something's wrong with granny. I'd tap granny on the knee and I'd say, granny, granny, are you okay, granny? My grandmother didn't talk a lot. So she'd look at me in a tacit agreement. She'd nod her head, granny's just fine. So music became a very vital part of my life. Music and storytelling. The neighborhood that I grew up in had been founded in 1868 by a missionary. So all of these stories of how this little community had become a burgeoning section of Nashville, Tennessee, and how it had sustained itself was on the lips of everybody. Everybody was a self-proclaimed griot. Come here, son, I got something to tell you. And then they'd sing a little song afterwards. So music and storytelling were like this one thing to me. And I got gospel at Granny's and I got jazz and blues at home. But after a while, I had to leave that world. Now, it wasn't without my parents and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles telling me how I should live my life. By the time you're five, you already know the path that you're taking. My grandmother said, oh, he's going to be a preacher. I know he is. I see it already. My mother said, oh, no, child. He's going to climb the corporate ladder, be a business executive, a top executive. And my aunts, particularly my uncle, said, well, he can really hit that ball. I think he's going to play a professional sport. And that's what I wanted to do. Had to acquiesce to the dreams of other people. So I went to Sunday school and church every Sunday like my grandmother wanted me to and to make those straight A's and be able to play football. I acquiesced my mother's dreams. And so I became the celebrated football player. High school All-American, went to college on a football scholarship and all I had in my view was to play on Sundays. Now, I pause here because I know when I say that, people are looking in the audience and they're going, you play football? Uh-huh, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, they're much bigger than I was, but I was really fast, really fast. So I went to college on a football scholarship, got my grades, and never did realize my dream of playing professional football. So I started working for IBM. My mother's dream, marketing representative, great salary, upward mobility, and those benefits, as my mother would say. Well, after six months, they give you this development book, and I was thumbing through one day, and I saw this page, and the question asked, where do you see yourself at IBM in two years? Where do you see yourself at IBM in five years? And I picked up a pencil and I wrote, not here. <laughs> it 
you know, the corporate, the corporate structure was not for me. And I knew that right away. In a room or at a, at a cubicle, I wanted to be out. Out with the people. And so I left IBM, moved to Atlanta, Georgia, with another company that had courted me. And a year later, they fired me. So here I am in a new city. And the only thing that I can really find are these jazz clubs. Jazz clubs where I can go and sing open mic. I'm not getting paid. It's no pressure. But at least I get to sing those songs that I grew up with, those anthems that my grandmother taught me, that jazz and those blues songs that I heard when I was sitting on the porch with my father in the summertime. And I started singing. And one night this gentleman came up to me and he said, you know what? When you sing, the room changes. Well, it was vague, but it was something that I had remembered because when Granny would sing those songs, something would change. Of course, she would. But something around us, and I couldn't articulate it at that time, and I couldn't articulate what he was saying then. All I knew is that there might just be something to this music stuff. So he asked me, he said, have you ever thought about doing musical theater? Hmm. Musical theater? Absolutely not. That's insulting to me. I came from a neighborhood of tons of little boys who all played contact sports. We never crossed the line and said, I want to dance or sing or act. That was my grandmother's doing. I'm glad they didn't find out about that. But this was the line for me, and this was the side that I stayed on. But something about it all began to appeal to me. So I asked him, I said, musical theater. I said, what is that? He said, well, you know, a lot of singing, dancing, acting on stage. I said, okay, I just got fired. I'm working two jobs, two jobs that are not going to be a career for me. I'll try it. And so I went to an audition, an audition for I Ought to Be in Pictures, Neil Simon comedy. Not a musical, but it was a play. And lo and behold, I get cast as Herbert Tucker, the lead. And my career just seemed to move straight up the ladder. Now, in the beginning, it was all about community theater. They, they weren't paying enough even for a week's worth of groceries. But something inside of it spoke to me. It spoke to me and it said, keep coming. If you keep coming this way, I'll show you. I'll open another door for you. And an, oh, an, a door did open. I got a call from Kenny Leon. He was the artistic director at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, one of the most respected regional houses in the country. And he said, look, my name's Kenny Leon. I know your name is Charles Holt. We don't know each other. But there are three people in my show who do know you and who've heard you sing at these nightclubs, at these jazz clubs. And we have three weeks to premiere the Amen Corner, and we just had someone drop out of the show for personal reasons. I don't have time to audition you, so I want to offer you the role now under one condition. I said, yes, sir. He said, you better be good. 
jumped right into the show, singing and dancing this music from the Amen Corner. They had put a musical element into the show right up my alley. And while I was doing the show, I met this gentleman by the name of Adrian Bailey. Adrian Bailey was getting ready to go back to New York to premiere Smokey Joe's Cafe. And he'd heard me sing at one of these jazz clubs. And he said, you should go get the soundtrack to Smokey Joe's Cafe and listen to it and then go to New York and audition. I said, really? So in that show, in that show, between that time and the time I moved to New York was one of the most pivotal points in my life because I was trying to think. Something inside of me says, go to New York, but I've never been out of the South. I don't know what it is to live out of the South. I don't know what it is to live three hours from my mother. But I went and bought the ticket. I said, I'm going to New York. I bought a one-way ticket. And so I don't know if this is global. I think it is. But with my mother, my mother is very keen on communication. She knows the difference in when one child is bringing something to her than when another child has something to say. So my mother always knew when I was throwing her a curveball. So I tried to doctor it up before I told my mother what I was doing. So I called my mother and I said, hey, mom, how you doing? Mm-hmm. I said, guess what? I'm moving to New York. I want to be on Broadway. Mm, she says. She says, let me get something straight, son. She said, you get out of college, you graduate from a top-tier school, you go right into IBM. One of the best jobs you could ever have. Marketing representative, great salary, fast track, those benefits. You leave IBM, you go to another company, the same scenario, fast track, and all of those benefits, and they fire you. Now you're telling me you want to move to New York, the nastiest, dirtiest place on the planet, to do the most unstable job there is on the planet? I want you to do me a favor. Get the phone book. Turn to the back where it lists all of the businesses and you thumb down from the letter A to P. And when you get to P, I'll direct you on where to go. Go to PSY. I said, I'm at PH now. Go to PSY. I said, I'm here. She said, find the word psychiatrist. And when you get the first listing, I want you to call it. Doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman. You call and you give them your name and you set an appointment. Go in and see them. Quick, son, quick. And when you come out, you'll be all right. Because you have lost your mind. I said, I will, mom. I will acquiesce to your request. There's only one thing. I've already purchased my ticket. I have to go to New York. And I couldn't explain to anybody why I had to go. It was a pull. A cosmic pull. I had to go. My soul was trying to find out who am I? 
I've lived the life of so many people. But is this my life? I want to find my life. Stepped out onto West 87th Street between Central Park West and Columbus Avenue, July 6, 1996. And I went to the corner and what I saw astounded me. There were buildings, tall skyscrapers. There were yellow cabs whizzing down the avenue like they were on the Indianapolis 500. There were dogs barking, people laughing, children playing. And I stretched my arms out and I said, I'm home. I'd never been there before. But I'm home. Somewhere inside of me knew that. Home. I got on the trail to audition. First audition was for Jesus Christ Superstar. There was a line wrapped around the block. 450, 500 people standing in line. And I had selected my song. I was going to sing the title track from Aladdin. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess. And I got up to the accompanist table and all of a sudden I said, I don't want to sing this song. I want to sing something else. And he looked at me and he said, Well, what do you want to sing? I said, I don't know. He said, sing an anthem. I knew anthems. My grandmother had taught me anthems. He said, sing America the Beautiful. I went and stood behind the X. He gave me an intro. I took a deep breath. And I forgot the words to America the Beautiful. My grandmother had transitioned the year before I moved to New York. And I took another deep breath, hoping that the words would come. Come quick, come quick. And all I heard was, just open that big mouth of yours and let the words come out. So my grandmother was with me, right there with me. And I sang, oh, beautiful, for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crowned thy good. And I finished the song and the panel leapt to his feet. Well, I didn't know what was happening. So I said, thank you, and ran out the room like a good little southern boy should. <laughs> they whittled us down from 450 to 24 in three days. From 24 to 12. And so the monitor, he comes out, has a sheet of paper in his hand. He, is, he says, look, I got 12 of you in here, but only six is going on tour. If I call your name, you stay. If I don't, get your things and get out. I'm pretty plain. So he runs down the list. Eddie Talton Jackson, stay. Seth Hampton, stay. Danielle Grouches, stay. 
Charles Holt, stay. Charles Holt, that's me. I can get to stay. I'm going on tour with Jesus Christ Superstar. And not just any Jesus Christ Superstar. This was Jesus Christ Superstar with Ted Neely and Carl Anderson, the original Jesus and Judas from the 1972 motion picture. And I was playing Simon and understudying Judas. Six months of traveling across America on a sleeper bus. One-nighters. And I was having the time of my life. The tour ended January 1997, and I got a call to come in to audition for Smokey Joe's Cafe. February 1997, 600 young men auditioning for one role. We were all upstairs, outside. Do you know how cold it is in New York in February? It's freezing. And we're upstairs out on the street. La 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 la. La 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 la. So they stack us 24 to a stage. One, two, three, four, five, six, and so on. And you get 16 bars to give them your best. They call your name. Charles Holt, step up. 16 bars. You sing, step back. And they danced us all day for three days. There were 24 of us left after the third day, and we were walking out of the theater. And the monitor looks at me and he says, they like you. <laughs> About an hour later, I get a call. Charles Holt, we'd like to offer you the role in Smokey Joe's Cafe. For a year, thank you. For a year, we toured in the States, not one-nighters but for weeks in one city. Things are changing. And then the last month, we went to Japan. For a whole month, my life and my view is shifting so very different. I couldn't have imagined this. I couldn't have scripted this myself just by stepping out into something that I'd never known or experienced before. Came back, and then I, my mother was, of course, interested. Tell me a little bit about this Smokey Joe's Cafe. She came to see me while we were on tour. The next show was a big, big show, too. I got cast as the first African-American Rocky in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Now, I had to put this to my mother delicately. So I called her and I said, Mom, guess what? I'm going to Europe for six months. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm playing Rocky in the Rocky mm Joe, and I'll be back in six months. She said, all right. Got back, and then Disney called. Charles, we'd love to have you come in and audition for The Lion King. Oh, The Lion King. It was the beast of Broadway at that time. Got to the studio, only four people being auditioned for one role. They told us after the audition, we'll make a decision by 10.30 this evening. 
one of you will be asked to join the cast of Lion King here in New York on Broadway. Well, I was listening with my phone. My phone was practically glued to my ear all day. 10.31 comes and I said, ah, I didn't get it. So I called one of the gentlemen that I befriended during the process. And all of a sudden, the message light goes off on my phone. I said, that's odd. No one's called me all day. So I go to my voicemail and all I hear is, Charles Holt, this is Mark Brandon. Call me, call me now. I call Mark and he says, congratulations. Welcome to the Lion King. Lion King changed my life for a lot of different reasons. December 17th, 1999. First show. First show. And I'm in the back leg of Birth of the Elephant. The back right leg of Birth of the Elephant. (laughs) Proceeding down. You know, that call. No! It can be heard around the world. We're proceeding down and we get to the top. It's the circle of life and it moves us all. And I look out into the audience and time stops. And something says, look, there it is. That's what you saw while you were in Atlanta. The dream that you saw of yourself being on the stage in front of 2,000 people. There it is. And I began to understand why this journey had taken me there. Because out of all the people in my life who I really wanted to get some instruction from. I mean my grandmother championed me. My mother did too and so did my aunts and uncles. But my father was the thorn. And the story of Simba and Mufasa brought home just how important that relationship was. I called my father and I forgave him. We had a tumultuous relationship growing up. But I realized that he was so much a part of this next adventure of this next assignment. I couldn't do it without understanding that he, too, had a major part in me coming of age. And I'm reminded when Rafiki the shaman, the baboon, she tells Simba after Mufasa has passed, after he thinks he doesn't have a father anymore, his father's absent, she says, look. He says, I don't see anything. She says, look. And there's a coming of age where he realizes, it's right there. It's right here. It's inside of me. I began to ask myself the question. I was in Lion King four years and eight months, almost five years. And at the end of my journey, I started asking the question, why am I here? What am I here to do? I love being on Broadway. I loved Broadway. But what is this all about? What's it all about? Alfie. 
Is it just for the moment? Or is this about life? And it was about life. So the promise that I was made was, do you remember when you first started it? That it was all about them. That the performance art had now turned into a healing art for me. And I said, that's it. I'm here to be an inspiration. The stage just gives me the platform to be an inspiration, to be a healing tone for someone and for me. I moved to Los Angeles. I had been doing some television and film in New York and I moved to Los Angeles and all I saw were the bright lights of Hollywood and I wanted to be a star. Make me a star. I moved to Hollywood and everything just dropped. I'd also dropped religion. Grew up in a highly religious household. My grandmother was devout Baptist. I became a devout Pentecostal and got to it, Los Angeles. And the first thing that my roommate asked me was, hey, want to go to church? I said, no, I don't do church anymore. He said, no, this place is not like church. I said, mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, what's the name of this place? He said, it's called Agape. I said, oh, okay, Agape. Carl Anderson used to go to Agape and he would tell me about it. It's years, Jesus Christ superstar. I said, okay, I'll come. I'll be late, but I'll get there. I walk into the church. They're getting ready to go into the meditation inside the service. And I see this man on stage. He has dreads. and He says, if you are convinced and sure, aware or not, that right where you sit or stand is exactly where you're supposed to be. I'm here to tell you, you are in your perfect place. Ricky, help them feel it. I was trying to find a seat. I had just located one, and all of a sudden, Ricky Byers Beckwith hit a chord on the piano. And I stopped. And I said, that's the chord that sounded like something that my grandmother would play. And at that moment, I heard inside of me, welcome home. I continued this journey of trying to figure out what it was that I was here not to do. What was I here to give? All of this rich history, growing up in a neighborhood that was founded in 1868 by a missionary, under the tutelage of my grandmother, this musicology, Jesus Christ Superstar, the Lion King, Smokey Joe's Cafe, it all happened for a reason. This was a divine setup. God, you set me up. I thought I could get away from you, but I couldn't. I thought I could get away from what I had initially come to the planet to give and to share, to reveal and demonstrate, but I couldn't. And so I said, yes. 
And it wasn't without pain. There was pain. There was a lot of pain. But I learned and my father taught me. I think now as we look at what is being outpictured in our communities, the local, the national, the world communities, there is something that is calling us all to be greater, to have more courage to step into that that we know nothing about here, but this knows. Just a step, and for some of us, we have to leap because it's time to swim. This morning, I invite you to take the breath with me and release. For such a time as this, what am I being called to now? My assignment. And you know we're collective. So I'm connected to you, to you, to you, to you. It doesn't matter how we look. That was something that my grandmother taught me too. See beyond the color lines. See beyond the religion. Everybody has a place at the table, she would say. The world is changing, and son, you can't stop it because you ain't able. Right now, in this moment, if there's anything that you want to say yes to, just say it. And you don't have to say it out loud, but in your heart of hearts, say yes. And step into it. Leap into it. Jump into it. And allow it to manifest in your life. And you become this illumination on the planet. We need it now. Right now. Thank you. Peace and blessings.